the world's population recently topped 8 billion people, and more than half of those people live in cities today. This number is set to rise to 60% by 2030. We need our cities to be inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable in order to support this growing population. However, addressing these issues in the urban environment can be challenging. Everybody, not just the people, the most privileged people, should be able to live somewhere that they can access all of the things that are necessary for a good life. Good public spaces, low carbon mobility, biodiverse nature, and also is socially well-functioning. There are a rising number of citizens that are so concerned and willing to actually shape their ideal cities. You're listening to Shaping Sustainable Places, a new Skanska podcast. We're here to recognize, encourage, and inspire stakeholders in the industry and beyond to accelerate the transition to a more sustainable, resilient, zero-carbon built environment. In each episode, we'll be speaking with industry and civic leaders, policymakers, and champions of change to explore innovative solutions to very real challenges. Today, our host, Heather Clancy, talks to three industry experts to explore what it takes to design a sustainable city, the steps their respective organizations are taking, and the challenges they are facing. To start, let's begin with Mark Watts at C40, a global network of city mayors who are taking urgent climate action. Their mission is to have the emissions of member cities in the next 10 years. Mark shares more about the measures that C40 is involved in and how all city dwellers can benefit from them. Hi, I am Mark Watts and I am the Executive Director of C40 Cities. C40 is a membership organisation, so the mayors, the leaders of the world's largest, most influential cities, just under 100, and its focus is on delivering inclusive climate action, so science-based action to cut emissions, stop climate breakdown. Membership of C40 is determined by mayors committing to that science-based action and then being held to account by it. So every year, one or two cities don't meet those standards and they lose their membership, which we think is very important. But we're equally focused on achieving that emission reduction and that improvement in resilience in a way that reduces inequality and improves equity in the cities. And I guess those two things really combine my passions, I want to do whatever I can that would make the most difference to tackling the climate crisis, because it's obviously it's going to determine the future of all of us. And this is where I see the greatest political leadership at the moment in the mayors of the big cities. A lot of our work, of course, then is delegated down to senior officials who meet in these various networks, lots of online forums. I don't think there's a city in C40 that would develop or would start any major new policy related to climate that they hadn't stress tested with at least one other city in C40 now. Why wouldn't you? Your group's mission is to have emissions of the member cities while improving the equality, while building resilience, while creating these, these conditions that are conducive for everyone to thrive. So can you talk through some concrete ways that cities are achieving these aims? Can you give us some examples of places or cities that have made good progress towards that? Thankfully, there, there are lots of examples. The one at the top of my mind at the moment, really coming out of the pandemic, is the way the concept of the 15-minute city has spread from Europe around the world. And I think it really combines the, those questions of emissions and equity, because the concept there is that, that everybody, not just the people, the most privileged people, should be able to live somewhere that where 
within an easy walk or cycle of public transport trip of their home, they can access all of the things that are necessary for a good life, from education to health and indeed work and leisure. And once you adopt that principle, you really stop replanning cities in a very different way. First, not designed for the car or people who can access the car, which in large parts of our cities is a minority, not the majority. But you also put a much greater emphasis on green space, on public space, indeed on on public amenity in general, things that people can have shared use of rather than it requires the money to have private use. We're seeing it started in Paris, but now, you know, Curitiba over many years has been doing something similar with its massive investment in bus rapid transit. Or I love the way that in Jakarta in the last few years, they've doubled public transport coverage in four years. But whilst reducing the price of public transport tickets so that it's gone down from about 30 percent of income of regular users to 10 percent. So greatly increasing access. Mark's work with C40 is about getting mayors involved in sustainable innovations for their respective cities. Our next guest, Guillaume Chenebronet, is co-founder and strategic director at Space 10, another organization with the aim of creating more sustainable cities. Their research and design lab is on a mission to create better everyday life for people and the planet. And we begin by asking him some of the challenges facing cities today. Nearly two-thirds of the world population will live in cities very soon, and all of those cities have challenges that are at the same time very common, and are some others extremely specific to them. And it's very interesting to see that despite all the research that we've done, we haven't identified one single silver bullet that would basically help cities and people to cope with all those challenges in one way. A lot of the things we can see in some of those mega trends that are very transversal or international are things like, as you said, the environmental impact or the social impact of the built environment is extraordinary. Nearly 30% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from the built environment, from construction and from buildings themselves. There's an enormous challenges for cities to be able to address this sustainability challenge. But on top of that, comes extraordinary challenges that are adding to this. Affordability, affordable housing is top of mind, for example. Sustainability, but also loneliness, stress, congestion, all of these are extraordinary challenges for cities. While sustainability is at the top of many mayors' minds, there are also other human issues like loneliness and stress that have been thrust into the limelight since the pandemic, which are just as important. And then with some of these challenges come unique opportunities. Guillaume cites several inspiring innovations that mayors and cities around the world have been implementing, specifically in these recent years. Looking into the most inspiring example we could find, all of that, taking and drawing a lot of inspiration from cities that are at the forefront of transforming. If I had to find a couple of examples, I would probably talk about the city I live in, which is Copenhagen these days. Copenhagen, which is on its way to become the first carbon neutral city by 2025, a fascinating city where... A lot of the focus for urban development has been around energy consumption, which is actually one of the fastest growing sectors in the Danish economy, which is interesting. Transportation today, most people living in Copenhagen ride a bike and don't drive a car. All buses are electric now. 
There is a fantastic infrastructure for bikes that people use daily. Food is organic. A lot of efforts have been done around all of this. A quarter of the whole city is made of green spaces. You can swim in the canal in the middle of the cities. There is gardens on rooftops. It's a city that has transformed since a couple of decades and is about to become something that, in my opinion at least, can serve as an example for other cities in the world. There's a lot of things Paris is doing. It's a city that I'm very close to. I was born there. But it's only recently, really, that the city stepped into a more sustainable path when it comes to its development. The mayor, Anne Hidalgo, has done a fantastic work when it comes to decongesting the cities, making bike paths, planting nearly 2,000 trees, and really working around this notion of the 15-minute city, a model of city development where residents would have access to all basic services, public transport, shops, schools, within 15 minutes from the house. And it's a very interesting philosophy when it comes to compacting cities into neighborhoods that make it more suitable for human scale type of living. And I love this path. A lot of people and at this stage, being French is almost more of a diagnosis than it is a nationality. So of course, not everyone is perfectly happy as cars are getting less and less welcome in the city. Of course, it creates other problems. But overall, I think the city is on a great path to becoming a lot more future-proof. Although talks of the 15-minute city began years ago, it has only recently been implemented in places around the globe. It's a simple concept, access to everything a person may need within 15 minutes from their home. Mark shares more about the challenges of creating these types of cities and what it will take to get more mayors on board in terms of building the infrastructure to support them. Let's talk about distribution. How does that change the design parameters, that 15-minute city? How does that change the permitting and design parameters of what you need to do with the space? Yeah, I think it makes a really big difference. This is critical to emission reduction because it's these big kind of design issues about how cities are planned out and how people move about that have 10, 20, 30 year impacts. So it's the decisions we make right now are going to determine whether we get to net zero 2050. But the big change here is to move away from the sort of monocentric urban development that I, I grew up with as a public official, where you're really assuming that most of the activity of the city takes place in the centre and you've got to design transport systems to get people from the suburbs where they live into the centre to work and go out. It also starts really changing what is the kind of where it's acceptable to have large volumes of traffic because I think we've accepted for a long time to have congestion into the centre of the city because everyone's going to be coming in at the same time and therefore it's inevitable. Once you use, in fact, using the changes in living and working patterns from the pandemic, you can have a quite different map of how people are moving around a city and quite different patterns across, quite smoother across the whole of the week, which requires quite different infrastructure, but in particular puts far less focus on that private motorised vehicle to get you around and much more focus on your own feet, being able to use a bicycle and being able to use shared transportation, obviously public transport, mass transit in particular. So how do we get the people that build that infrastructure to support that vision? Most of the progressive developers I talk to, progressive construction companies, engineering companies, they all want to be part of the solution about building more equitable and zero carbon cities. And I think the answer here is to get much more involved in working with mayors and policymakers to set the strategic direction of planning policy and other policies, rather than feeling all you can do is react to the regulations as they exist 
and therefore which really determine markets. Mayors have a big ability to create and shape markets, particularly in things like the design of buildings through building codes or where development takes place through broader planning laws. And I think where the public and private sectors really work together in a kind of pre-procurement partnership, it makes a massive difference. We've heard our guests mention Copenhagen as an exemplary city several times so far, and for good reason. It's famously clean and easy to get around by bike, and its residents, as well as political leaders, are extremely passionate about sustainability. The mayor of Copenhagen is also involved in helping other cities reach their full sustainable potential. And Mark shares more about the initiatives they're taking hand-in-hand with C40. The Scandinavians have typically been the best. I think Copenhagen over many years has had a model where the public policy to be one of the cleanest, lowest carbon cities in the developed world has gone hand in hand with maximising opportunity for new business creation that then can sell services right around the world. Copenhagen historically has been a city that's managed to combine really strong public policy lead to become one of the cleanest in the of the richer cities in the world, lowest emissions but always develop that public policy with an eye on developing business opportunities and then being able to sell those services, those companies right around the world. I just came off a call about an incredible collaboration between district heating companies in Copenhagen, organised through C40 and the mayor there, that have been helping Chinese cities improve the efficiency in their massive district heating systems, and it's cut coal use from heating, which provides most of the heating in the big cities like Beijing and Xi'an by 25%. That's a really great example of a public-private partnerships that have started at a strategic level in one city and now enabling big change in other cities on the other side of the world. When I started out in city government, it was always a battle to protect green space. It was seen by most city officials and most developers as a wasted resource that could be developed, something could be built on it. Whereas now we see expanding green space as essential to having a livable city, to having lungs within a city, to reducing emissions, but creating the kind of place where people are excited to live. And design has changed so much that we can have compact, dense cities, but with more green space, with more trees, with greater ability to absorb rainfall and ability to manage rising heat. And there's loads of great examples of that, but two of the ones at top of mind for me, the way that Guadalajara and Colombia has created these extraordinary 70 now green corridors right across the cities with public gardens all along the way. And it really is cooling the city. Or in Freetown in Sierra Leone, one of the poorest cities in the world, war-torn, forest destroyed by years of civil war. One of the biggest job creation programs in that city is now the planting and management of new forests because they're planting trees that will provide the basis for medicines, for other biological, natural breakthroughs, and with a high-tech industry behind it in one of the poorest cities in C40. I love that example. That shows, if you will, the multiplier effect of what C40 is doing, that what the cities within that network are doing and how you share information. 
While cities around the world have very different plans and climate budgets to work with, collaborating and learning from one another is key. Space 10 recently published a book called The Ideal City 2040. Designers, researchers, and city planners came together to propose, brainstorm, and dream about what an ideal city could look like in the future. Their hope for the project is that it serves as a blueprint for cities around the world. Like C40, Space 10 sees the value in working together to build more sustainable places for us all to live. The Ideal City is a book we published together with Gestalten last year. And that we did together with a bunch of people that are smarter than us, designers, urban planners, architects, friends, people in our network. It's been a few years now that we're really looking into this future of cities. And everyone kind of has an opinion for cities to be more desirable, more livable, more sustainable, definitely. And so we wanted to create in this book a more shared vision or visions of what an ideal city would look like, hoping to design some kind of a North Star. And we came up with five big principles and around which principles we collaborated with with experts and people who know what they're talking about to describe what that would look like. So basically, we've identified five principles that would make up an ideal city. And such city would be resourceful, it would be accessible, it would be shared, safe, and desirable. And all of this includes things, of course, like sustainability in construction and in living. It, it includes energy consumption, transportation, resilience, climate change, and all that. So what we've done is collect a bunch of thoughts, but also concrete examples from the world and things that inspire us. How can we see these ideas sharing and collaborating throughout the world? It's a very good question. And I think there are several ways of doing this. Even Space 10, we, we've experimented with different formats. But one of the most powerful one is to give people a chance to talk about how they live and how they made it happen. In that case, the whole challenge is more organizational than it is financial, for example, to build such a community. So there is a, a bunch of recipes and best practices that can easily be shared for people to replicate that initiative. So there's this pattern we call blueprinting that would allow you to basically package all the necessary ingredients and tools and know-how that would allow people to replicate such model in other communities. So that is extremely important. Taking the time also to, well, document our research, such as what we've done with the book, Ideal City, or the many reports, the events, the podcast that we've done before. All of these are extremely interesting ways to spread those ideas, to make them portable, and then to open the door to further communication. And then if you really want to push this, I think there's a lot of value to be found around the logic of open sourcing content and design as well, which we've also experimented with, but that other people like WikiHouse is doing super well, for example. So there's many different tools in that spectrum, but I think mostly it's about being able to package that knowledge should become actionable and being able to also understand the context in which a group or a community wants to build those projects, whether it is possible or not, is a, a highly subjective or at least contextual question. All of these innovations aim to create more sustainable cities, and Space 10 works to share knowledge and encourage these types of innovations. Motenke Jeppesen is the director and team lead at Gill, an urban strategy and design firm that puts people first, much like Space 10. Morton is at the forefront of designing and planning for healthy, equitable, and sustainable cities. Rather than separating cities into different areas for housing, work, and entertainment, Gill creates holistic cities that give residents access to everything they need in the same area. 
Morton also believes that collaboration is essential for these cities to work, both in terms of the architects and engineers involved in the projects, as well as community engagement. He affirms that if you can't get the local community on board, they will never want to live in these new sustainable neighborhoods. He also mentions the importance of creating districts for all income levels. My name is Morten K. Jeppesen. I'm a director at Giel here in Copenhagen and leading the design team in Northern Europe, where we design master plans, public spaces and landscape. And I'm an architect and urban planner in training. How would you define a sustainable city? There's a lot of terms to put into a sustainable city. I think for me, it's a city that's livable, it's healthy, it's dense, it's mixed use. It's a place where people have access to good public spaces, low carbon mobility, biodiverse nature, and also is socially well-functioning. I think in a way to sum it up, a sustainable city for me is one that is thought of holistically and it is a good place to live and work and recreate your life or have a good place to live. So when you think about that life and the public life and cities now and how people live, work, play, travel, everything that they do in their life, what do you see as the most important ways that cities need to evolve to become more sustainable, to become more sustainable for humans as well. Yeah, I think a big transition that, that is happening now, but I think we should think even more of, is to think holistically about it. Uh, many cities are planned with different functions divided by infrastructure. One area is for housing, one is for work, one is for sports or culture. But I think we need to think about it much more holistically to, to create mixed-use cities. And for me, it's really about Rethinking the city as a complex system where we can develop it towards a much more dense, mixed-use, lively and socially equitable place. And that is by thinking collective transport, green walkable streets, bike path, together with the everyday functions that we need to sustain our life in retail, getting groceries, picking up the kids from school, going to work and having green public spaces for walking our dogs. Is there any particular thing that you think needs to take priority in that mix? Or is it just all of these things? Is there one driver where you start with that flows out to influence those other things? For us, the main driver is in many ways the everyday life that we live as human beings. It's really to think the city as from the starting point of ourselves. How is it we move around? How is it we can meet people in our daily commute? How is it that we can make daily life much easier having the school right next to where we work. So we just go directly from work, pick up our kids. Then we go buy groceries, stop by a park with a playground on the way home, and then we are back. So I think that's really one of the major starting points of that. So I'd like to hear more about the actual projects that you're working on. This is a lot of good theory, but can you tell us about a project where you're, you or your team really pushed the limits and give us an example of a way you made this come, become real? Yeah, right now, we're working on, on a large master plan just outside of Copenhagen. It's inner suburbs where we're transforming an industrial site into a green mixed-use housing area. And what's so interesting here is that they're building a light rail connecting the suburbs sort of diagonally outside of Copenhagen. And that will completely change the mobility patterns in these inner suburbs that are mostly dependent on cars and suddenly walking, biking, taking a light rail will be a new way of moving around. And here we have a super ambitious client that wants to create sort of a sustainable neighborhood of the future. They want to certify it with a DGNB certification, create biodiversity strategy, and they even have 
sort of a factory on the site already making timber elements that they also want to use to build this new district. So it's also going to be built on site, you can say, with reusing the existing materials together with their own sort of timber factory. And that's also going to change in the bigger CO2 calculations that we don't need transportation of building materials from other places, but we can actually do it on site. In many ways, a fantastic project with a super ambitious client, but also that taps into, you could say, so many elements of a sustainable district within transportation, within mix of functions, within green biodiverse areas, within material reuse. That's quite a fantastic project that we are engaged in. You just mentioned how people work together, architects, builders. Do you need to work with them differently in order to support this sort of work? Is there a different way, style of working, a different point at which these organizations start working together on something? It definitely is. I think for us, building our partnerships is the way to work. And that's both in, you could say, cross-disciplinary work, sitting together with engineers, environmentalists, local stakeholders, politicians is changing. It has changed. And we are part of that. Simply building up those partnerships from the beginning, looking at it across the sector. And then we see the way that we work as, as much more iterative than previously. Years ago, it was much more silo thinking. Engineers were sitting for themselves, planners for themselves. Maybe local stakeholders were not even a part of the process. Today, it's much more starting together, creating a foundation where everybody can see themselves, everybody puts in ideas, and then we iterate and iterate and come up with findings and solutions that that is much better for the complexity of, of a master plan. I also heard the community engagement part of it. How important is that for a, a reimagining of this nature? I think it's super important. I would even say essential. If you don't engage the local community, they will never use it. And we are here to create districts for everybody. We're not creating cities for some. We are creating it for all. And that means that the local community should also be heard. They should also see themselves in it. Many times, local ideas can start there with local people having maybe already existing initiatives or projects that can be implemented, but also that they can have inputs to how it can be developed. And that it just makes a much better if everybody is on board. Designing a sustainable city is all about creating spaces that will help local communities thrive, all while having a low impact on the environment. It's about getting city planners, builders, architects, and mayors involved in the process from start to finish. Increased quality of life can benefit all of us, and Guillaume of Space 10 believes that city residents care more about the neighborhoods they live in than ever before. Because when we work together to move towards sustainability, everyone wins. I have the impression that people care more about the neighborhood than before. They care more about their neighbors. They care more about their quality of life in the surroundings of their home. And that I think is super important. But that also means that citizens might have more occasions, more means, more tools to get involved in creating their ideal city. Of course, within the means of a city itself and within a, a bigger plans. But I think there there are a rising number of citizens that are so concerned and willing to actually shape their ideal cities themselves. And a lot of people donating their times in anything from community gardens to intergenerational living, etc. That 
foster and reinforce this social fabric that after all is the soul of cities. So there is, if you will, the skin of the cities and the building and the materials that has something to do with regulations and with constructions. And this is extremely important. This podcast is brought to you by Skenska, a world-leading project development and construction group using knowledge and foresight to shape the way we live. Please go to skenska.com to learn more. When it comes to designing and building sustainable cities, collaboration is the name of the game, whether between builders, designers, engineers, architects, or the community. Concepts like the 15-minute city are just a few of the industry breakthroughs happening around the world. These advancements can serve as inspiration to us all and proof that sustainable cities are not only possible, but are better places to live. And that's something worth getting excited about. Thank you for listening. And a special thank you to our guests, Mark Watts, Guillaume Chalet-Bonnet, and Morten K. Jepsen for joining us. To learn more about designing a sustainable city, you'll find links to any resources mentioned in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And be back every episode as we continue to explore shaping sustainable places.